Hi everyone and welcome to the new edition of My Inspiration, a brand new podcast series from HMV in which we give musicians, actors, filmmakers and writers the chance to take a welcome break from talking about themselves and instead talk about their greatest inspiration, someone who's been a big influence on their lives and informed their own work. I'm your host Tom Goodwin and I'm delighted to welcome you to our latest episode. I'm joined today by our producer James Forrier and today's guest. Today's guest began his career living a double life. In the early 2000s he juggled a career as a high school teacher with being frontman of post-hardcore band Further Seems Forever. All the while, in breaks between classes and nights away from the band, he was writing on his own, writing rather different material. Heartfelt acoustic songs, stripped of all the sonics of hardcore, and far too personal for his other band. Eventually he compiled the songs for an album, released under the name Dashboard Confessional. It was meant to be a brief side project, but it's born into a whole new life. And almost 20 years later, he's still living it. We've got him here today as he begins the UK leg of his tour, celebrating 20 years of the band. So please welcome Chris Caraba. Hello. Hello, thank you for having me today. So, you, um, the 20 years tour well, kicks off in the UK tonight, um, but is this the first kind of leg of things, or have you had a few shows so far? Um, this, uh, this will be the third show, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure if, it's, if it counts exactly as the 20-year tour I count it, because yeah. uh, I had the songs in my pocket <laughs> this time uh, 20 years ago, but they weren't quite, quite <laughs> recorded yet or released. Um, next year is the actual <laughs> calendar year, 20-year anniversary, so... Um, I guess all that falls under semantics, but in any case, it's very hard for me to believe that it's 20 years or nearly that, mm. that as I sit here with you guys. Why did you decide that you kind of wanted to take the band out on the road for, to celebrate? It just seemed like the natural thing to do. To celebrate the 20 years? Yeah. I don't feel like I was given too much choice. <laughs> the, my, my, my audience <laughs> was, uh, um, they treated it almost as a foregone conclusion to, uh, you know, as I would visit with them after shows, what are you going to do? Like, what's it going to be like, the 20-year, the 20-year, the 20-year? What are you going to do? I hadn't thought, I thought I'd open a bottle of wine or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I realized, uh, just as the band, even though it often is just me alone on stage, just as the band has never really been just me, it's been me and my audience and the songs we share together, um, this 20-year experience, the celebration is as much theirs as as mine. So... um How's the kind of how's the set list going to come together? Because you've got a lot of material to pull together. You've not decided to base it around one album, as some bands have for the kind of twentieth anniversary tour. It's going to be everything. Yeah, no set list. Mm. I, have, I don't do a set list. Uh, well, I'm here playing just by myself. Mm. We well, you know when it's a band setting, and there's there's a necessity to to keep mm. the, keep the other guys informed. Not that I'm the best at that. I'm <laughs> often, often about to play the song I've announced, and somebody screams out this one instead, <laughs> and that's what I start playing in the band. The poor guys have to just. Mm chase it mm. and they give me that side eye look like it's become a point of pride with them now to be able to turn on the dime however that said uh all i know walking up on stage is uh what my what i've decided my first song will be and what i know my last song of the night will be and everything else is is uh anything uh that i can remember when they call it out if i've played it in the last three years even once i will myself to play it even though i maybe don't know it well mm. um I have discovered in just th- the two shows that I played here, which was Glasgow and Manchester, um, that they're asking for some songs that I didn't, ex- didn't expect. So I, I was here in London last night eager to get out and, and see London. 
but I, I stayed home and did homework instead because I want to, I really want to, I really want to be able to create the moment as designed by the audience. I don't want to be the, uh, the thing that interrupts the flow. I should just be there as the, the vessel. Do you find people are kind of calling, I mean, is it mostly songs from earlier in your career or is it a right mixture of kind of everything? It, sure, it, sure, it surely surprised me that it's from, it's all the way up to the newest record. When they called out for, there's a song called Heartbeat Here that is probably my favorite song on my newest, my last record, record called Crooked Shadows. And uh, it, people like it, certainly in the, in the States and other places I've been, but uh, and they, when I play it, they, they respond, but I have not heard it requested with such fervence. Um, as, or sung the way it was sang um, at the last show. So, uh, but certainly they are digging deep into the archives. And, you know, that's a test. <laughs> you know, there's a, not only are some of these songs um, 20 years old, there's just a lot of them. <laughs> there's, there's a whole lot of songs. And then they're also uh, asking for, I'm in, you know, I'm in, in Further Seems Forever, and I'm in Twin Forks. And so they're asking for these uh, my other band songs too, which I didn't know I was supposed to rehearse for. And I'm trying to make sure I'm on point with those too. So I haven't been back in kind of dashboard mode. Um, are you thinking about new music, or is this very much just a kind of a celebration period? And then you'll, when the tour winds down, you'll see what you want to do. You know, I thought it was going to be. It's strange to call it a celebration, but I guess it is, mm. isn't it? Retrospective. It's, it's a retrospective in my mind, but not. But the closer we get to it, the more it feels like a celebration. These shows so far have shown me what I might be in store for for the next year. Um, it does feel celebratory, and you know, it's like it, in a in a in a way that I I feel like swept along. In. Um, but I was home. Uh, you know, I was here a year ago, almost to the date, and uh, I can't recall if it was Manchester or Newcastle, but I wrote a song that I wrote it backstage 15 minutes before I, I went on stage. It's probably got the most words that I've ever put in any song. And I don't know where this thing came from, but it came out. It spilled out, and I, I, I said, well, what have I got to lose? And I played it live that mm-hmm. night. I played it for the rest of that tour. I thought, this will be the centerpiece of my next record, which will obviously be coming quickly because look at this one how it spilled out well nearly a year later i found myself with only one more song <laughs> so it looked very much to me that next year was going to be as the year of celebration and not of of new music however um i went on a trip um to as i see we're you can't see us here but we're surrounded by posters and uh, mm. this seems to be a, a lot of marvel on the uh, on the walls here. And, Always. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was just invited to New York to do, um, uh, for a network uh, television event, uh, honoring Stan Lee, mm. who had been, uh, in a way, instrumental in part of my career. And um, while I was there, I stayed with uh, my friend Adam Dirtz from the Counting Crows, who, who I've been friends with, who's been a mentor to me from, from the early days of Dashboard. And along uh, at uh, Adam's house, was um, was Dave from Gang of Youths. So the three of us had heady conversations about music and writing for, for days on end. And um, I, I left there really, really inspired and wrote 13 songs in the successive couple of weeks 
now. Is that a record? Well, it's a record's length of music. I think it's a record. So uh, when will it come out? Doesn't matter. When will I record it? Doesn't matter. But just when I thought I would have only written the two songs all year, and then here I am with about you know, 15, 15 songs uh, that I think strangely have, have brought me around to the first two records. They're in the vein of the first two records. The first two dashboard records almost share a place. Um, they were recorded within three months of each other and written within three months of each other. And that's a long backstory you don't need to hear. But, <laughs> um, but I, there's a spirit to them and there's a re- uh, revealing nature to them. Um, there's just a lot of there's a there's a lot of similarities to the place I'm in now, um, and the place I was in that led to those those two records. So, I have a hunch they'll make. Will they sound just like those? I don't know. Do they talk about the same subject subject matter? Not exactly, but will they make people? I, I suspect they will make people feel because they've made me feel this way. Some something similar to what they felt when they first those, heard those two records. And we've got you here today to, um, to talk about your greatest inspiration. Um, would you mind telling us who you've chosen? Well, it's, a, it's tough when you have to choose one. Especially we when you're... <laughs> yeah, right, of course, right? And, you know, as a, as a... I don't know... I know a couple musicians that just hate music, and I won't name names, but that, that, that is mystifying to me. I can't conceive of how... One in particular who's a worldwide superstar, I will not name, who <laughs> is very honest with me that he hates music. <laughs> and he is incredible. And he <laughs> is world-renowned for being so incredible at music, and he doesn't like it <laughs> at all. <laughs> anyway, it's just... But, but I, on the other hand, am a record collector and a devourer of music and looking for something new and w- finding ways to connect. And... And um, so, uh, you know, and I assume that you, both of you are the same way or you wouldn't yeah. be having <laughs> conversations like this. And I, you know, I'm, I'm even peering over your shoulder at this small rack of records over there wondering what, if I can find something new <laughs> today. But, the one, but I sat and I thought, what's, what hit me deeply and profoundly when I first listened to it? What band or artist? that that record continues to hit me that way. And their successive records continue to hit me that way. And that I continually draw inspiration from. And I it didn't, the one, and that, that's, there, therefore, I, there, thereby I was able to find the one, the one. And the one is The Cure, and Robert Smith, probably more specifically. So The Cure get going in, well, the first record is 1979, and you would have been four, so... I imagine it was a little later. When did you first discover The Cure? Kind of where were you? Like four and a half, I think. I I didn't get it right away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like everyone else in my teen years. Um, You know, certainly I think I I had cousins that were older than me and a brother that was older than me, and I'm sure I heard it beforehand, but it it didn't become my thing that I discovered until my my teen years. And I venture to guess I must have been 15 or 16 when I... uh, MTV in the United States had this thing called 120 Minutes. 120 Minutes would play oddball videos from bands that didn't quite make sense. And now The Cure have hits upon hits at this point. But they're still, they do it in spite 
of being a mainstream sounding band. So this is not unlike heavy rotation with what would the bands of the day have been during 120? I mean, still like a uh, spillover of, it was like post hair metal pre grunge. That's where 120 minutes filled that gap right between those things. And you know, like this is like moments later or seemingly uh, Nirvana would be on the scene and explode all this music. And now all, everybody would have the at 120 minutes became almost not as useful because every, the whole station, the whole network, the whole world was alive with, with raw music. And this, so, but this was the place I discovered bands like the Pixies or um, um, the Cure for, for, for sure, uh, 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 um, the Smoking Popes. Bands, just, they just didn't fit down the middle lane, but what they did was championed by this. By this. And I watched religiously. It was once a week. And it was at, I think, one in the morning on a school night, you know. <laughs> and we, we'd, we'd, still, we'd still stay up and watch. And um, at this point, the, uh, the, the, the beauty of this is I'm trying to remember what record must have been out at that point. It could have been Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. And so I did not... For, I did not... Uh, I wasn't aware that there were other records right away. Mm-hmm. So, and as you do... In that era, and maybe one day will again, you devour a record. And you listen to that album. Oh, you listen to it with devotion until you know every, every tiny bit of nuance and uh, mystery and, uh, and l- lyrical twist and turn, um, melody and uh, tone. And, and when you're uh, a bit like wonky, like me, like nerdy about mm-hmm. music, you... you you really are thinking about things like how did they get that tone? Well, that's not a guitar or a keyboard. What could that be? You know, mm-hmm. and and no way to know. I mean, th- there was the internet. I just didn't have a computer, <laughs> so I could have gone to the library, I suppose, and looked it up. But you know, I didn't. Anyway, uh, but what what I did have though was this great back catalog all the way back to 1979. And so I found the record, right record clerk at the right record store that said, that I said, um, do The Cure have any other records? <laughs> you know, well, they, they have about a thousand, you know, <laughs> so let's, let's, let's talk. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and he took me linearly, chronologically, excuse mm-hmm. me, uh, through uh, the, the records. And, and it gave me the records on loan because I couldn't afford the records. Mm-hmm. But he was a Cure fan. And he was um, excited. Uh, he was older um, than I was. I was if, if I was 15 or 16, I'm guessing he was probably about 40. And I think there was a part of him that said, uh, I get to do this. I get to do this for this kid. And I bet you somebody did it for him. You know? And um, so he loaned me his own, his, his own records for, I think, two weeks at a time. And I had to come in and discuss the songs with him. And we really, like, really had deep discussions about this. Stuff. Oh, what? Like this, this strange friendship. <laughs> yeah. A 16-year-old kid is developing with a 40-year-old man. Um, <laughs> and one that's lasted, to be quite honest with you. Um, but I was, uh, I was drawn into this. So this is something that this deep dive was exciting and felt... Um, s- solitary in a way, like a, like a, I knew my f- 
it was a little bit anathema in the skateboard scene to, to, not, to listen to anything that wasn't punk rock or hardcore. So I wasn't telling my friends. Mm-hmm. I discovered this. Like when I discovered the Descendants, also much later mm-hmm. than they had arrived on the scene, I told everybody <laughs> with pride. Well, I, I didn't tell everybody about I was. I knew I'd get teased and, and picked on. And uh, I was wrong about this. <laughs> I thought I'd get teased and picked on. I thought they wouldn't get it. They did. They mm-hmm. did get it. But at the mo- in the t- in that moment, I didn't share it with them. Um, it was my secret. <laughs> but it was obs- I was obsessed. I was obsessed. I, I you know I took these and it was fun that he gave me vinyl. See, vinyl was having this isn't the first resurgence of vinyl resurgence of vinyl that we're having. I, this was that might have been um, that era right previous to the grunge movement exploding and right through the grunge movement exploding and. Um, um, so I was hearing these on, so I had a record player and I'm hearing it on vinyl the way originally was intended. But I'm, um, you know, dubbing them down to, to cassettes so I can play them in, in, as I walk to school or, or, or if I was in uh, my parents' car and I was just, I wouldn't stop listening. And the thing that I, this template, as a listener, this, and, I, and definitely as a writer eventually, but this, this, this template, this became a template for the, for the bands I'd be drawn to in the future. I seem to be drawn to bands and musicians whose music speaks volumes, emotionally speaks volumes about the emotional content that is about to be expressed lyrically, but is willing to take its time to get to the lyrics. So that you are almost entirely feeling the feeling, almost not totally, almost entirely, entirely feeling the feeling that will be expressed in the lyric and the tone of the singer, the tone that the singer sings these lyrics to you in. And they're masterful at that, the cure. Um, other bands that I truly love, and it, like Built to Spill, for example, and Band, band of Horses more recently, uh, they do that too, and I... I, can, I don't know, but I have to imagine that they also fell for the cure the way I did. What was it kind of about the sound, do you think, that grabbed you? I mean, because if you listen to hardcore and skate punk, I mean, it's a massive world away. It's a, it's a world away. It's a world away. Well, it's a world away when you are first induct, uh, your first introduction is something that's pretty well produced, like Kiss Me, Kiss Me, mm. Kiss Me. All the records are well produced for what they are, the cure is uh, trailblazers in, of production. But it's a, it's a professional-sounding mm-hmm. record. And uh, by contrast, if you go listen to, to Boys Don't Cry, mm-hmm. well, that's a song that sounds in production as punk as you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was the juxtaposition. I think I'd found all this adren- adrenaline-fueled music that was emotional. Um, and it defined bifurcated listening that I did between punk rock and, and hip hop, which overlapped heavily in my life and probably in others' lives too, but they, they just timing and living in the Northeast and then in the, in the South in Florida, like these two worlds that happened concurrently and overlapped. Um, but then to, to discover the cure and hear orchestration, the music, I had been listening to was a dominant force um, 
smashing you on the head with no subtlety that you must feel this right now. And I did. And I felt it deeply. And it taught me to feel music deeply. Whereas the cure lulled me into their trap, lured me and lulled me into their trap. And uh, I found it fascinating. I found it, like for lack of a better word, I found it to be incredibly punk rock. The fact that there was, there was almost subversive. And it was only my own experience. I had no friends to speak to about this, you know, I, or I, I wasn't allowing myself. I grew up in a hard scene and you could get, like you really could get your ass handed to you physically <laughs> for liking the wrong band. I mean, people took, it didn't take much for somebody to decide that's good enough reason to start a fight today. <laughs> um, so I was, you know, you were constantly on your toes about things like that growing up where I grew up. Um, the music of The Cure and the lyrics and the singing of Robert Smith, they're, they're parts of a whole. But even separately to me, they, 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 they've impacted me together and separately in equal measure. You've, um, you've covered The Cure a number of times. Um, you're doing just, you did just, last, just like Heaven and you come up a few recent set lists and then you've, you've done Catch in recording. What's it like kind of covering the songs? I mean, and kind of, you know, pulling them apart and putting them out together into your style. I mean, are they, are they, are they difficult to do? Are they intricate? I mean, how, how, is it, how was that experience? They're not difficult. Um, what I realized is how, what was difficult was like, okay, I'm going to show my cards here. Because you're, You'll notice I didn't do, start those, doing those particular covers in my early days. Mm-hmm. Because in your early days, you, you want to seem wholly and completely original. Oh, no one's ever done this before. And all I do is Robert Smith <laughs> um, in a lot of ways. And so I didn't, so I took, a, a, it took a long time for me to get to the place where I could be like, okay, if you can't tell by now that my melodies or perhaps my, my tone, one of my tones that I, I lean towards are influenced by Robert Smith. You, you don't care. You're not listening. Or you've chosen to ignore it out of kindness or something. But I figure at this point, uh, it's evident to everyone. And so now I can. Now I can do it. And so then to put it through my filter, it's more about uh, how can I... can playing the songs with my band or by myself um, bring me the same feeling that I get when I listened or first listened or continue to listen to those very songs. And they can't. But they can bring me something new, which is a new way to relate to that song I've loved so much. And there's other Cure songs I've covered. There's very few, there's very few of them that I haven't covered um, in some setting or another, you know. But I do think that... When I'm playing my own song live, there's a pride, a nervousness, uh, there's self-doubt, there's confidence, all these things are just rolled up into one. When you play a song of a band that you feel so devoted to, there's also a sense of responsibility. Because maybe, just maybe, there's somebody out in the audience that, that doesn't know that song or that band, and maybe you're turning the key to it to a door they didn't even know was there. It's now unlocked for them. And uh, 
I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to, to convey in the only way I can, not being Robert Smith, what, like, there's more. There's, be- there's a better version. <laughs> this is, if you like this, trust me, this is the worst version. <laughs> there's, a, there's the best version out there, and I promise you, you can find it. And, and I love that feeling. So having kind of dive, had your education, did you then keep up with it as you became a kind of professional musician? I mean, you said you're a nerd from a technical perspective. When you start writing your own songs and the more intricate and raw dashboard songs, I mean, are you learning how to construct things from those records? I, mean, I think I'd learned. I think I had learned. Um, whether I knew that or not. Um, so there was... And the way that I think that that's... I, I then, what, I, what I attempted to do was attempted to do, excuse me, was, was to mask that so that I could find my own original territory. Um, but you cannot and should not turn off the things that, that made you become the musician you are. That's dangerous territory and a lot of people tread on that territory. You know, they could go one of two ways. They, they either totally embrace it and they become a carbon copy very few of those bands are successful at that. The ones that are are extremely successful at it, and then and then they 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 charge forward to new territory. And the ones that buck their ter- their their influences and say almost as if yes, oh, I never listened to any music until I wrote my own song. You know, <laughs> this is total nonsense. But one thing I like, I can tell you the the the, the most obvious earmark of me trying to separate myself from my influences, knowing I wanted to show them as well. Um, I knew my melodies were going to be somewhat similar. I figured, how could they not be? I knew that he, that Robert Smith's lyrics, or the Cure's lyrics, had tremendous effect on my, the uh, depths to which I realized you had to dig inside yourself to find the most potent feeling to draw upon. It's not the few on the surface or even deeper. It's well deep, well, well deeper. Um, I learned that from The Cure. But I think my melodies and tone, especially as I've gotten older, show more and more of a Robert Smith influence. Um, But the thing that I did to set myself apart was no intros. Um, The Cure has these, as I described earlier, these long intros that will put you in the emotional place before the lyrics come in. I thought, well, what if I just came right in singing and told you how I felt? And maybe that'll throw them off the scent. Um, this is my youthfulness, you know. <laughs> now I, I'd love to love it when somebody says, I bet you love an X whatever band. And, then the, and when they're right, I'm really excited that they found it in, in something I put out. That is something they do remarkably well. I mean, the... You, when you hear the start of a forest or or, um, or love song, are you immediately transported to that kind of bit of melancholia? Whereas the opening bars of Friday I'm in Love or Just Like Heaven are immediate uplift. And it's yeah. I don't think there's a band out there or an artist like it who can just immediately shit in a mood just like that straight away. So what I did was say, well, I can't do that. So I'll just tell you from the top what we're going to feel <laughs> together here. But interestingly, as I think about the next band record, I realize that's the one... Uh, the, our, our audience has been amazing. They've given us such a uh, 
wide berth to explore new things over time. But that's that's one where we haven't. That's territory we have. I, I, it was almost um, sacrosanct to me, sacred ground. And uh, I feel like now, in my tenure, so twenty years in, I can, I can make an attempt now, to. I'm not saying that I'll be able to do it as well, but I can certainly try to see what I can do, musically, to make you feel something before, I come in and tell you what we're feeling, together. Um, I finally feel like maybe I can make, I don't mean a, my Cure record, but that part of the influence that I've been tamping down for all these years, I finally feel like I can let out. Now you're famous for having a close relationship with your fans, whereas I think Robert Smith's famous for having no relationship with almost anybody except outside the privacy of his own home. He doesn't, strike, he doesn't ever appear to be happy to be at award shows or even talk much in between songs. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting way of doing things when you're that huge, isn't it? It's interesting. But, you know, what we do have in common is I also do buck the award shows and all the limelight, the, the traditional limelight of, of, of what I, when I'm, when you describe my relationship with my fans, it's really there at the show or out in the street. It's, uh, it's not in page six or, or things like that. Uh, uh, I do think I, I took a little bit of a cue from that, like, you know, uh, but, you know, my relationship with my, my fan base is, 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 Oh, it's just incredibly important to me the the fact that I can have one that I can get to know these these people as people, um, not just faces I see now and again or or only once ever. Um, I already know the stuff I like. It's wonderful to get to visit with fans and find out what it is that makes them tick a little. Um, but it is different. Mm. I I do know that if I was, I mean, I don't imagine Robert Smith would saunter out to the middle of the venue once he's done playing just to visit um, and I do yeah. yeah have you seen The Cure live much over the years yes I must have seen The Cure five times um, for someone like me that's not much for other people that might be a lot but for, for somebody that goes to shows as often as I do and it is so, to think of your favorite band in the world and you've only seen them four or five times um, it's not enough. No. Where was the fir- when was the first time? The first time. The first time was like a like a radio festival in America. They must just have released Friday in Love or were, were about to perhaps. Small venue, not small by any st- measurable standard, but by the Cure's standards or what I imagine the Cure's standards are. You know, it was maybe a thousand capacity, maybe two thousand capacity. And they played a short set because it was presented by the radio station. They played maybe a 40-minute set, which is like two songs for them some nights, you know. <laughs> and uh, it could have been longer. I don't know. I just remember being in a state of bliss watching them. And only two months later, that song had, Friday I'm in Love, had just become this worldwide phenomenon. And I saw them play in, in a, an arena just, just months later. And I had that night sidled up to the radio station people and offered to do anything at that radio station in order, not knowing they'd be in an arena, but that the next time they came back, I'd be, it was, had been tough to get into that show. I said, I will do anything. I will do the, I'll get coffee, I'll flyer shows, I'll do anything. And I did, I did anything. They were, uh, they, they were, some things were ridiculous, but I did everything and anything for this radio station in order to uh, to be on that list to get a ticket, and because uh, I couldn't afford 
certainly couldn't couldn't afford a, a, an arena show ticket at that time in my life. And I ended up sitting. I remember I remember exactly where I was sitting. I've played this arena now, you know, several times. And I can and I look there, <laughs> and I look at the kid who sits in that chair every time. I was that I was that very kid. I know that. I hope he feels or she feels that sense of connection. That's all I can hope, you know. And I, I'm in an arena full of people, and I'm playing to one. <laughs> and we always ask our guests um, with the with any with whoever they decide to talk about what people think the hidden gem is. What's a bit of the artist catalogue that gets skipped over? The um, Cure obviously got a long career, lots of different sounds. What do you think is the one that deserves more love than it gets? I guess it's all relative. I don't know what, you know, because it's an American, uh, American audience interpretation of their catalog. So I may say something that everybody here celebrates and knows. Mm. But disintegr- uh, not disintegration, excuse me, um, had on the door rem- the remix album version, uh, I think is, is a tremendous reimagining of these songs and is often overlooked in their in their catalog I don't know if it's because it's thought of as other people's work which it isn't it's their own remixes for the most part from what I understand or if it's just well I already love my version that I have and I've lived with but it did what it did for me was make me understand how malleable songs can be and if there's uh, if the heart of a song if the heart isn't of the song isn't taken up. The song itself can be um, pressed further and into different uh, territory than, than a, its original um, presentation. And, and, and it showed me, and I continue to learn from it, that, that songs are malleable, living things that are meant to grow and, and change and then maybe come back. You know, sometimes when I play my songs now, especially when I do these solo tours where like, so if I'm playing with my band and I hear my guitar player do the guitar, play the guitar part that he plays every night, that's the one that I hear. Well, I'm singing, you know, you, you, you change the, you know, you change bits. You can't, you can't help it. And most, probably all bands, uh, they don't listen to their own records. Uh, they've made the record. You listen to it a lot while you're making it and when it's just finished and then you say that's that and you move on. But when I play to the audience by myself and I hear I'm singing what I th- the way I think the song goes it's go- it goes this way for me because for 20 years it's been growing and changing and then they sing it the way they listen to it every night or you know every time they listen to it and uh, the right quote unquote right way oh man what a thrill I go right back and I'm like yes they were they're right it does go that way and I'll sing it that way um, songs should grow and change and and um and be brave. They should be brave. They should be brave enough to, if they if they have if they truly have heart, they will stand still, even if the framework around it is is altered. The last Cure record came out in two thousand eight, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of a new one anytime soon. Do you imagine that Robert Smith has just had enough of that cycle and will do these big one-off kind of big shows, event shows, and then aside from that, it's a, it's a nice life. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't like to think that that's the end. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
I've often wondered this about myself, you know, I bet every writer who's been writing a while starts to wonder, like, have I written, have I written my last song or have I, have I, is this the last time I'll feel the need to write? A song, you can write a song anytime, but like, is this the last time I'll feel that real burning need? Um, it may be that the, eventually the answer is yes, but I surely hope not. I hope not for myself. So I can't imagine, can't know either, you know, I just, can't imagine that he would not cross that that point again where a song must must come out you know it needs to come out the follow through all the other things that make it make it something that the rest of the world hears so there's probably a lot of variables i don't i don't know in my like i made a record in 2008 that was my last record for a while and i certainly didn't have the long at that point it was a much shorter career obviously than than the cures and i didn't think i'd make a record so Again, uh, as dashboard, and I, and I did. Um, so by that math, I think there should be one any minute. <laughs> <laughs> now, finally, um, what do you think the ultimate Cure record is? If people were going to start somewhere, where should they start? Would it be where you started, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me? Or it has to be. It has to be only because that's where I started. Yeah. I don't have a. I can't have a better answer than that, even though I don't know that that's actually the best cool. one. But for but. That's what I have to say. Um, I will say that, uh, and maybe this revisits like one that's overlooked or lost. But you know, I do feel like like Wish is to some people just the album that had Friday I'm in Love, and it is absolutely profoundly perfect. That that record. Uh, That'd be another great one to, to start with. Um, I think the obvious one that people should start with is Disintegration. Um, but if it was somebody that I was going to walk through a, cat, the, a band's entire catalog with, the way that my uh, friend of, a, of 30 years senior to me uh, walked me through a catalog, I would, I would ask them to start with Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. Well, thank you very much for letting us hear you. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, then why not join us next time when we will be talking to singer Jack Pinate. He'll be opening up about Arthur Russell, the eccentric cellist, and his ultimate inspiration. To get that, and all the other episodes of My Inspiration, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. Full information on today's episode, as well as all the others, can be found on our website. Just visit hmv.com forward slash podcast for details. <laughs>